So the last few episodes that I've had of Wealth Chat, we somehow always end up talking about open banking. So I'm very excited to have you both here because today we can actually speak about open banking and everything that it entails. But before we get started, please introduce yourselves. Oh, okay. You go. No, I'll go. Uh, I'm David Hooper. I'm Vice President, Open Banking and Payments Consulting. Um, I've been with CGI for about almost seven years, uh, starting off building up the payments practice. And then we've now morphed into, you know, as, as things change in the market, open banking. So I work closely with Roy. We're, we're building up our experience and, and knowledge in the open banking space. I'm Roy Kao. I'm a director at CGI, and I lead a practice called Financial Services Innovation, which includes, of course, open finance, among other topics. And this is a topic that I have a great deal of interest in, given the, my uh, my love about uh, the intersection with, with uh, financial services and data. And uh, since joining CGI, David and I have been building this practice to focus on open finance and helping our account teams as well as our clients navigate through this uh, journey. That's actually probably the start point. As you heard us, we each said a different word. Relatively, you know, responding or referring to the same thing, but open banking versus open finance. And it really is about the scope of it. It's, it is morphed as we've seen it grow around the world. It's beyond just banking. So we include things like insurance and global or uh, wealth management, all of those sort of other factors or other financial services types of entities. So it's really open finance, not just banking. Well, that, that's a great starting point because my first question was going to be, what actually is open banking? I feel like, and you alluded to this, David, that everyone has a slightly different view of it and a different perspective on what it means. So what does it mean to you guys? And what are we trying to achieve, at least in Canada, for when it comes to open banking? Uh, it, it really is a topic that, you know, if you speak to 10 people, there'd be 10 slightly different versions, right? For me, open finance... It's all about data. It's about data access, about data mobility for consumers and small businesses. And it's about uh, increasing their surface area of financial services that allows innovation and uh, an increased use of data, whether it's volume or the velocity of data, to allow financial service institutions, service providers, whether it be a bank's insurance company, to build increasingly innovative products, increasingly personalized products and services uh, to to allow uh, consumers uh, more choice, or as Finance Canada defines it, competition, positive competition, as as part of it, it's a drive for open banking in Canada. Yeah. So uh, as Roy says, I mean, the, the origin in just about every country has been let's have more choice, more competition, more technology, uh, less old technology, uh, or you know, processes like screen scraping, which I know we'll come back to. But I would also add to it, say, the other thing about open banking is it is about, initially, about data sharing. But the only reason you need to share data is if you find a service that is going to make your financial life better or help you manage it. So before Roy, if he's the bank, before he gets a request from somebody to give them, give them my data, I have to sign up for some sort of service. So if I find something that's going to make my life a lot easier and help me manage then I tell them, yeah, I love the look and feel of your app, your your site. I love what you're going to do for me. Go get my data. And I have to tell them where my data is, give them permission to go get it. And then I have to tell the bank, you have my permission, my consent to give them my data. So there's the front half, which is very much the customer facing. They have to have found a service that they want to use that needs the data to deliver the service. And then it's absolutely about delivering data securely and 
you know, how it's being used, who's got it, how's it being controlled and maintained. And, and this is a good moment to emphasize a couple of things, double click on a couple of things that David said. This is a good moment to talk about, first of all, open banking, open finance is a terrible name because it creates all kinds of confusions on what it really is and what it isn't. And it's not just an open access free for all to your, your financial services data. It is really about consent. So David used that word, consented sharing of, of, of your data and uh, with, um, with a secured and approved or accredited uh, service providers. And that it allows you and you have, you know, c the consumers will have increased control over their data about whom to share with, for how long they share with, and for what purpose they'll share the data with. Yeah, 100%. When we've, uh, we, we saw that in other countries as they adopted it, that there's this huge uh, learning curve, or let's call it a trust curve. The two guys that built an app in their garage that are you know, portraying that they're going to solve my financial problems, they have to be accredited. We have to, they have to pass some hurdles. You're going to get data from a bank, and I need to have control over it. I, we need to make sure that they're legitimate and they're going to be around for a while and what they're doing it. They're not just giving me a fancy graph saying how I use my money and then selling my data off to Google or something. It can't be something like that, right? Off, offsetting that way. So you have to know who's involved in the ecosystem. They have to be accredited or licensed to get in. And then we follow along with that. Right. You guys have voted so much in there and I want to unpack a bit of it. But, you know, let's start with open finance, open banking. What are the benefits to consumers? Like, Why is this being introduced? What can consumers expect out of it once, they, once it gets launched in Canada? Yeah. Well, start with... Uh, consumers are probably the first ones, but I'd almost make it broader, say customers, because it's not just consumers. It'll be businesses, particularly small businesses. But we'll say, we'll use that as, as the consumer. What the consumer should be able to get out of it is to find, again, I go back to services, a service that will help them manage. So if you only bank with one institution, all your investments, everything's at one place, you probably don't need as much. <laughs> But if you're like many of us that we've got three accounts at one bank, a credit card from another bank, a mortgage at another bank, the idea of being able to access all that data, aggregate it, pull it together into one place so I can see it, give me, give me a full view of my finances and my financial activities, that's a, that's a big benefit. Now, am I willing to pay for that? Maybe, maybe not. Just about every bank and credit union and, and uh, just about anyone else who manages money can do can and does do an assessment or analysis of all your transactions and give you a graph that says, hey, Lubna, you're spending this much on coffee and this much on groceries and gasoline. That's great. So that's pulling it together so I can see it one place. That's a benefit. Then showing me a breakdown of how I'm spending my money or saving my money. That's another benefit potentially. And then giving me advice, you know, not just informing me, but giving me advice or recommendations. You should take this product because it'll save you money. This product will get you towards a, a specific financial goal quicker and then help me go there. And that's where it becomes the, the next big step. Really the value is helping me not only give me a view, but now actually proactively manage my finances in some way. But the key is finding those services. And that's, that's where it comes from. The benefit comes from. Right. So it, I imagine it will eliminate a lot of the manual work that's usually done of, you know, I, I think about having to go and open up a new account, for instance. Mm -hmm. And there's always like the exact same information that's being asked over <laughs> and over again. And what drives me crazy is when I already have a product with an institution and then I want to add something else on or just want to, you know, add a feature to an account even. Yeah. 
it's the same information all over again that's being asked for. And I do not understand why, because I know you have all of my information. I just updated this account last week. You have all of, you know, all the updates. You have everything you need. Um, so will open banking also facilitate in that regard where people won't constantly have to go in and fill documents? Uh, absolutely. So one of the challenges you, know, you alluded to is that for a larger financial institution, and it's around the world, not just Canada, but we'll, we'll use Canada as a microcosm. Canadian financial institutions are famously uh, siloed between their businesses, right? So if you have a if you have a bank account and a credit card, you want to buy an insurance, to your point, they're going to ask you for all your information all over again. It's right, like as if they don't know you, you walked in off the street. And so certainly uh, in, in an open finance regime where there will be, you know, secured consented data sharing, that will be one of the, the key benefits to a consumer in that they, he or she, or they no longer need to re-input their data, re-share their data. The, the drive for competition beyond that is it would also allow institutions for customers who are looking to switch account or to perhaps acquire a service product from another institution to allow them to still have the benefit of the secured and consented data sharing right across across institutions. And so this is a, a key element that I think a lot of um, of, of institutions or entities who are concerned about open finance, you know, debilitating them in some way through competition is that that they themselves will also benefit from a better view of their customers, right? From the customer, so the customers get access to more competitive products, but at the same time, the, the it's competitive intelligence that any institution who's a participant in this framework has access and will be able to see, you know, that that classic. 360 degree view of the client. This is why with the open finance um, evolution, this is increasingly uh, apparent to other segments like insurance, like wealth management, because they now understand that in order to really get to know and provide better services for their clients, they really get to need to know, get better understand their client situation. And there's no better way of sharing and having a snapshot and an update you know, constant update of the of their condition, status, and and their um, circumstances through the sharing of data and understanding of and, and of where they are. Yeah, that's one of the things that you know, when we're in conversations with uh, with banks, we often suggest to them that if you're not quite ready or you're not sure exactly what the model will be for the you know for dealing with the public with open banking, look at it internally. So exactly what you said, that's one of my bugaboos. I hate filling out forms from a company that I know they've got my information. But don't put a form in front of me. Ask me, can, David, do I have your permission? Let's say I'm opening up, a, trying to get insurance at one of the banks or uh, open up a registered account. Do I have your permission to go tap into the information in your bank account on the retail side of the bank and then bring it forward? Yes, you do. And they'll come back and they go, is this still up to date? You can show it to me. Has anything changed? Oh, look, my email address changed or something. But grab that data. So. Use the data sharing concepts inside the bank to eliminate those things. Because the services that we're looking for, in addition to, as I said, helping you manage or make things easier, is also to try and eliminate those friction points, the things that none of us like. No one likes to fill out long forms. But the information for a mortgage application or a credit card, it's required. But I give you my permission to go do it elsewhere. And to take, take that step beyond banking, as we said, just as an example, under an open banking regime with the capabilities of you know, giving permission to share data, when you go into the, you know, the, the transportation ministry or 
I want to say DMV, but that's not us at all. <laughs> if you want to go and renew your license plate or get your license renewed, you go to Service Ontario, you've got to fill out a form. There's absolutely no reason that they can't have a, a third party that helps connect them to open banking. Go check with two of my banks and bring back my, you know, my phone numbers, my address, my everything else. Bring that data back. Just go, is this you? Yes, it is. Nothing's changed. Bam, they've got it. It would make their processes more efficient, far less friction for me, right? But that's there's an example of the sharing of data. It might be coming from the source being a financial institution, but there's, you know, you're renewing your license plates. Yeah. There's an opportunity to use the ability to access data to present a better customer experience. And that's it's as much about that as it is helping the consumer manage. Definitely. And uh, it's funny you say Services Ontario because my driver's license will be expiring soon. And I've been told, actually, by my insurance agent, you know, just a reminder that they don't send out notices anymore. So since they don't do that, I would think it would be a much more efficient process if they can go to your bank because they know exactly who you are. You know, uh, as I discussed with Jamie Holland here, um, we even at CJ, we help the insurance industry. We are a repository of data. We know who everyone is. And Services Ontario definitely has access to it. Mm -hmm. So just go there. Confirm all my information and then just let me know, hey, just so you know, we updated your driver's license and I'm assuming there's a fee associated and, you know, just bill me. Yeah. Right. Like, or give me an option to pay you somehow and just do it because I'm going to have to do it at any rate. Why not make it a more efficient and pleasant experience? Do it all online instead of having to line up at 730 in the morning <laughs> at what you hope is the the office that is the least busy, right? I exactly. Yeah. I mean, yeah, authentication validation are two of the lowest hanging fruits, right? And what we're talking about in the advent of in a world with open finance, but also increasingly um, explorations in digital ID, which the government of Ontario, among other provincial governments, are also looking into it. And that, that the vision, the nirvana is to be able to access not just financial services, but also government services, whether it's health service or renewal of the driver's license or vehicle registration. And then, and then, in a framework that is secure, that is validated, and that is valid for um, for the users and easy to access. And that goes along with uh, something we've recognized as one of the challenges. We've seen it around the world. Is, is It's all based on trust. I have, As I said earlier, you've got to trust the service provider that you want to use their, avail yourself of their service. There's, I can trust that the banks are going to look after my data, but who are these other fintechs and things like that? So there's that trust element, but then it's exactly as Roy said, when we get get to this next stage, we, we're going to get to digital IDs that will promote trust. But the challenge would be, of course, Ontario's doing one thing, Quebec's doing another, the federal government's doing another. Uh, we'll have all these different variations. We've got to make them interoperable. So mm -hmm. it can, you can't have an Ontario digital ID, then try and use some sort of service in BC, and they go, I don't accept that. And now you've got to revert back to logging in, right? So... The trust, anything that can help promote trust will advance the cause and increase adoption of the services and the capabilities of open banking. Definitely. And you both uh, previously mentioned, uh, if we go back to the uh, banking um, siloed example, for instance, um, you know, all, all the banks or and my background is obviously in wealth management, but the focus was always on KYC, right? Know your client. And so I, it seems a bit counterintuitive if your focus is to know your client and yet you have all this information about your client within these other divisions of your firm, 
but you can access them. So how can you truly know your client and how can you truly provide them the services that they need and get an accurate assessment of their situation if the data is just sporadically in different places and you're not allowed to access it? Yeah, it's true. And and it is one of the areas that I think all institutions recognize that they need to do a better job. They want to do a better job. And the government's and when it comes to regulatory authorities and those are who are who are in the potential regulation, who are who are in the business of protecting consumers, believe that that is an area for definitely for improvement. Right. Um, now, I do sort of want to speak about. You both have mentioned open banking in Canada. So, can we start with what is the status with that? Like, what is happening and what are we trying to do in this country with open banking? Well, if, if you look that way and squint and tilt your head, <laughs> you can see it coming. Um, we joke about it that way. It's, you, you probably got better information than I do as to where we are with our lead, but we, we have a lead in place who is supposed to guide us on the journey to put all the regulations in place, uh, the legislation that's required, frameworks, and an entity to manage open banking much as we much like we've seen in other countries but uh you go ahead and tell us what, what you know from the from the inside <laughs> I'll fill in, I'll fill in there's a date right yeah, there well, is a date. there's a date so uh uh abram passion was uh, appointed in march of 2022 to be the open banking lead and his mandate began in april of that year and that his mandate falls in two parts and he was mandated and he reports into uh minister um randy boysono who's the I believe he's the associate deputy minister in finance. And so his mandate is driven by two parts. And the mandate, the length of the mandate right now is scheduled to be 18 months. Uh, first part is bringing in what is called phase one, uh, based on the report on open banking, uh, the consultation uh, on open banking that was published by the advisory committee on open banking um, that came out in August of 20, uh, 2020. One, I'm, yeah, I'm forgetting the year now. 2020 was a lost year. <clears throat> so, so he's halfway through his mandate, um, and the two parts of the mandate is uh, with the first one of which is this last phase one, which is a, a to promote and has set up a framework for data activity. In other words, some people call it read access, but it's about uh, accessibility for to your point. For example, the authentication, validation, being able to access the data for those purposes. The second part of the framework um, of this mandate is to set up a framework for open banking in Canada. And that framework needs to include a governance set of rules as well as entity for governance and accreditation. Um, where he is right now, it's uh, the, the there was a number of working group meetings that happened midway through, began midway through 2022 that ended in December 2022. Um, he's had a steering committee meeting that was December, to, um, and the by the way, all this information is shared on the Government Canada website, and um, they've established some, uh, some what I'll call ground rules about the ground rules, and then, uh, so the, this steering committee is supposed to uh, help assist the process in driving and establishing uh, some of these uh, foundational elements uh, for this uh, governance accreditation body. Where that date is, so the date has uh, originally was targeted for January 2023. It is now targeted for September 2023. Um, and there are rumors that, you know, it may be a little, uh, there may be a little slippage beyond September 2023. And it'll be interesting to see, you know, how much of this mandate can be, can be delivered by the end of 2023. 
It's not the easiest job to be done to bring everyone to the room in Canada from financial institution to the fintech startups and regulators and everyone else in between. Um, so this task is is monumental, to say the least. But at the same time, it is one that I think it is it's critical. And once you establish the ground rules, and it doesn't have to be perfect, right? In startup world, we talk about the, the perfectionist dilemma. You don't it doesn't have to be perfect, but you have to have a working system where you have the general agreement on the principles of 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 the actions of the of a framework like in open banking, open finance, um, and then start going forward. And this is where I think a lot of a lot of ringing hands are both excited and a little uh, trepidatious about you know, the progress in Canada in twenty twenty three. One way or another, will be a pivotal year. How pivotal will depend very much on how much progress is made through the open banking lead. And we've seen parallel activities. As Roy said, it's a lot to move an industry. So there's a lot that has to take place. There's a lot of discussions. If we can agree on principles, then we've still got to get down to the details. So if we look at what's left that's outstanding, and this is by no means a complete list, uh, we need to land on an API standard. We've probably got a de facto leader at this point, um, but there's nothing official. So I mean, we need a spec. We need a standard to follow for our APIs. Uh, we need to have a framework for data security and data sharing. So there's legislation involved from the government side. Uh, we also need to have a liability framework. So if I hand off data to a service provider, be it large, large tech or a, a fintech startup, what happens if they get breached? Like who's who's on the on the dime for that? So we need that liability framework. So specs, uh, framework for um, for the security. We need the liability, and we also need, as Roy said, for the participants, what's the accreditation process to get in? So the banks are automatically in. Credit unions right now, it looks like they will be optional. If they're ready, go ahead. You can play. Otherwise, you can wait and join later. But we don't know how the fintechs get there or any service provider gets to participate yet. There has to be some sort of hurdles. You're entering into a highly regulated industry with data, which, of course, is, you know, security of data is paramount. So we, we need all of these pieces. And well, now that ARAM's a year in, we've got till September to get all that nailed down. Well, some of it we could probably move relatively quickly, but legislation goes at a government pace. We don't know what, I didn't say glacial, but it takes, it takes time to put that in front and get it voted on and all these things. So there's, there's a lot of work left to do. They've made a lot of progress in terms of uh, discussions across the industry and getting buy-ins and different points of view. It's, but there's still a long, long way to go. Right. You mentioned data. And whenever I hear that, obviously everyone is concerned about their data and data privacy. Mm -hmm. And uh, I know that nowadays consumers are less concerned about data privacy and more concerned about convenience. You think so? Right. I, I feel like people, I don't know about you, David, but I tend to just say agree and move on to the next screen. I, I okay. barely ever read those, you know, those long, 500 page, uh, <laughs> six font terms and conditions that you scroll through. Okay. I'll, I'll give you that. You know, like, I think I, everyone's concerned about the security of their data, Yes, but they will sign off on things just because it's, it's too much work. I'm not reading all this. So you're right. Yeah. Click it's agree. similar to cookies, right? Like I can't, like how often have I gone and actually clicked on manage cookies and versus just accept, accept all, all and, you know, <laughs> let, let's move on. Right. So people are definitely concerned or concerned with the privacy of their data. But there's a bit of a, I suppose a current has come down a bit where convenience is tends to triumph and convenience is king. And so it's kind of like, okay, let's just do this and get it over with, right? But I, I question this because 
with open banking, and as you two both have mentioned, it's all about data. And this it's very sensitive data, right? It's like data about your financial situation, about you as a person, perhaps your demographic data. Like there's a lot there. Mm-hmm. Um, and we've become very accustomed to companies that provide us convenience just taking our data, packaging it up, and selling it, you know, or giving you targeted ads. Or using it for their own purposes that you haven't asked for. Exactly. So with open banking, like, there's going to be a lot of sensitive data going back and forth. So how do we ensure that what consumers expect to be done with their data is all that's being done with it and not something more? Yeah, so uh, I think that the first thing, and it's lessons learned from other jurisdictions like UK, Consumer awareness, I think, is number one. You really have to educate um, and from the foundational elements about data. What is being done with your data and how far is your data, and how far reaching is your data being used and re- beyond your, you know, your original intended purposes, right? And I think there's starting to be awareness in that part of it's driven by legislation, you know, it, the, 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 the need to check off or to offer you the option um, of of rejecting the cookies or accepting or or allowing certain types of cookies to to mm-hmm. be deployed on your on your system, that is a, an improvement, and it certainly is, is a sign of progress. And I think a lot of this will will come over time. Now, granted, my kids, my kids' generation, I use them as an example, is a generation that's very comfortable sharing their data and not realizing how far. I mean, you know, my kids, like many ch- many kids in the school, they use Snapchat. As an, as an app, right? And Snapchat, and we reviewed each and every function about privacy that we, and we had to turn, turn off certain functions like location. The granularity to which they could see where their friends are anytime when they're on that app and see where they are anywhere in the world. Mm-hmm. My son has looked at a, a friend of his who was traveling Italy last time. He's like, oh, they had you put down at the pizzeria that he was in. And so, so that kind of a, uh, that kind of a sharing is uh, somewhat frightening, I think, for a lot of our, our generation very comfortable or perhaps ignorant for the younger generation. And so a lot of it's going to be about about education, about awareness, about what can be done with data, how what the uh, you know how long the data, the persistence of that data for and for how long leading into you know what and as we see a lot of politicians these days, you know paying for the sins of a tweet from 5 years ago, right? And how <laughs> far that reaching that can be yeah. and understanding that. I think that that is going to be number 1. And then, and then you could start talking about you know the the, the volume of ty- types of data, but I, that awareness and that that education is going to be super inc- super super important, not just for data, but for any functions around it, like open finance. And that's where I expect I have expectations of whatever our open banking entity is going to be. That and we've seen this in other countries that they want the providers to use clear and simple language and not 30 pages long in a four-point font, the clear and simple language to be up front and say, I'm going to collect the type of data I'm going to collect, what I'm going to use it for. And it's we don't want them burying things. That's that's the thing. Love now, I'm going to take your data for the purposes of giving you a, a, a complete view of your finances. And I, I will, you know, take this data and this is what I'm going to do with it. And then as part of your ownership capabilities, you can say, okay, I'll give you access to my checking account, but you can only see the balances. You can't see the transactions. Or you can see everything in my my account, but I'm going to say you've got it for three months, and then I'll decide if I get to continue it. And then give you the ability at any time to go in and alter it and or stop it. So it's both sort of both sides. To give you control over it, you need those capabilities I just said. But we also need 
to ensure that the service providers who are going to be accessing and you know aggregating your data that they are very clear what they're using it for. I'm going to take your data so I can you know glean insights into what you're doing with your money. I'll stick with the money example. I'm going to uh, use it uh, to be able to break it down. I'm not going to give it to anyone else. I will only use it for these purposes, and I will not store it. I will you know do that, and I will just pick it up as we go. They've got to say and keep it in those simple terms of exactly what they're using it for, right? And unless we have that up front, then it it opens the door for someone to say, well, I've got the data. I can do whatever I want with it. I've showed you your graph, and now you know where all your money is. I'll package it up and sell it off to somebody because I'll make money here, and you know that's what we want to avoid. So we've got to have that sort of the two sides of there's got to be regulations as to what you can do with the data. You have to clearly say what your intentions are. And you, as as the owner of the data, have to have the ability to change it or stop it, revoke right. it. And is there legislation that's being discussed to ensure that it works the way that you have described it? That it's very clear on what it's going to be used for. You set your, you know, time limits. Okay, I only want you to have access to this for a week, or you know, even for an hour. Or one one just, time access, right? Just for you to populate what whatever you need. Um, my concern again with again with data is always that it it's always kind of crawling. So like it starts with one little thing, and then it moves forward and forward, and it's always with. Oh, we're going to give you this like little added incentive, right? And then we're just going to add a paragraph down here about some other things we might do as a yeah. result of you getting that incentive. It's like the cruise company inviting you at <laughs> breakfast. It's not just breakfast. It's never just breakfast. <laughs> no. But time sure. Yeah. Um. <laughs> but the yeah, so so there are legislations. Um, you know, Canada has a, a very outdated and quite old piece of legislation called PIPITA, which uh is 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 it's you new enough to understand what data is but it's old enough to to not realize the scope and the applications of the personal data that can be used and so there is a bill called c27 in in um in the parliament right now i believe it's passed first reading that seeks to update among other things how data is used how data generated who has the right to that data and how is it going to be shared and a persistence so that's going to bring bring canada up to date now the, the, this legislative process takes time, and so a lot of people feel that, and there are many in the industry feel that we need to rush and step that up before a, a truly functional open finance regime can be stood up on that foundation. Um, what's interesting is uh, the, the provinces I have heard, and this is secondhand, that Quebec actually has its own, the province has its own Electronic Data Protection Act that is far more reaching, far more reaching than than the federal one and actually has provides uh, more harsher uh, penalties that for the violation of which and and it, for the gold standard everybody around the world looks at Europe's GDPR and and you know Canada I think really didn't want to go the, that very lockdown route the GDPR which was Quebec did and so there are um, already you know, the um, dissensions among the ranks. Some feel that it goes too far. Some people feel that it doesn't go enough. And, it's, and the, the Canadian government, if there's everyone, if the one thing that can be accused of is, is the Goldilocks effect. It tries very hard to be just right. And quite often it just never pleases anybody. So, mm-hmm. uh, and so it, it seems to be perhaps where the, C, the Bill C-27 is going, but at least there's an update. There's an intention uh, to update. And, and it should be noted that this is actually their second kick at it. The previous government had uh, had proposed Bill C11, which is very much has many of the elements 
But unfortunately, when an election was called and the writ dropped, that bill died on the floor of the parliament. Of the, of parliament. It's, it's actually, it's interesting you mentioned, you know, sort of looking at it from a data perspective. Uh, we look at open banking, and as, as Roy said, everywhere we've seen it, it's an open banking and your data is going to be shared, which as, as we saw, scared a lot of people who thought it was going to be a free-for-all, which we know that's absolutely the last thing it's going to be. It's going to be highly regimented. But we look at the country like Australia, they took a different slant on it. It started with a consumer data right. So they built the data security, the privacy, all of that first. This is how companies within Australia are going to collect data, use data, and give the, the consumers control over it. And then they applied it to different industries and they started with banking. So we've kind of, everywhere else in the world, it's kind of been the two at the same time. There they started with, with data. And uh, I mean, I, I think we're still seeing the data or the information coming out to determine how, how successful it's been, but it was just a different approach. It was very much data first versus banking services, right? Yep. Melded a bit more together. So, I mean, there's, there's lots we can learn from other countries who have gone ahead of us. But as Roy said, I mean, we need this legislation and it, it moves slowly. Right. But since we do have these examples of these mm -hmm. other countries that have very functional open banking, open finance, <clears throat> it's already been introduced there. People are using it. They're happy, perhaps a bit unhappy, depending on their situation. So you described a few issues that we needed to resolve before, David. And I guess my question is, since we have all these other geographies that have already done it, they've implemented, they're living it, why is it so difficult? Like, why don't we try to just look at them as examples and say, okay, this is how they did it. And because from where I sit, we're kind of in an advantageous position because we can learn from their mistakes. We can kind of sit back, observe, see what was done right, what was done wrong, pick the pieces that we want. And I would think that would actually help accelerate the process. It certainly can. Um, we just went through a payments modernization in this country and we had the same sort of thing. We were able to look at countries that had done it two years ago and 10 years ago, type of thing, and everything in between. So you can learn from being a fast follower or just a follower in general. Um, but I would say in my experience, what I've learned and, and we, we see is that good ideas don't translate exactly from country to country. They've always got to be adapted because of political landscape, uh, legislative landscape, rules, things like that, or, or the markets. So yes, I think uh, the, the straightforward answer is, yeah, we should be learning and we should be able to apply these, these, these learnings uh, to what we're doing. Now, whether we do a good job in that, we'll find out. Um, but I think it's an interesting, an interesting twist to to look at those other countries that have sort of led, and what we can what we can do from that. Because we look at uh, the services, the infrastructure, the technology. And uh, let me go back to the first bit you said when you said, um, "Oh, what did you say?" Uh, it, it was about the you know what, what what oh sorry it was about what we've seen of what the possibilities are. And we have still are waiting for all of these, these elements to be put in place. So we, we kind of laugh about it going, well, how do I know what to do? Where do I start? Well, if you can look at what's happened in other countries and figure out that, yeah, it's going to be pretty similar. We've, we've jokingly said, uh, think of it like you've just ordered a living room suite from Ikea, <laughs> right? I know there's two to two end tables. I know there's a couch. I know there's a coffee table. I know there's four lamps and I know there's a rug coming. That's open banking. We just don't know what's getting delivered when. So when we, and this is an analogy that way, we talk to small financial institutions or credit unions and they say, well, like we're small, I, I can't afford to build, go down a road and then have to change direction. How do I know what to do when we don't have the rules in place? 
And that's where if we sort of go back to, well, here's the basics. You know it's coming. You can start to build towards these things. Education to your, your members. Uh, start building up the trust. Start thinking about services you can offer. And the infrastructure pieces, you know, it's pretty straightforward. You know there's going to be a standard. Yeah, we don't know exactly what it is, but you've got to build APIs that allow this. You know you've got to protect data. So there's a lot of things you can do without knowing the last details of the frameworks that are coming. Yeah, and you know, so Finance Canada has certainly done their homework, right? They uh, they have gone to all these jurisdictions. Brazil, Singapore, Australia, uh, to name a few, the UK, an uh, understanding where, you know, where success, successes have been the pressure points, the lessons learned. Uh, and there are a lot of overlap. And they try to, as much as they can, to apply these lessons to your point, the fast hauler model works for us. But there's one thing, one element that cannot be overstated that the, how important it is and and where Canada really needs to um, needs to take a you know review and take a look at it and and modernize it and that's the area of, of regulations and and compliance and I'm going to sound like I'm stepping up on the soapbox a bit here but you know the the one of the success of the UK that's allowed them to be successful in implementing an open banking regime uh, they just had their fifth anniversary. Is that they uh, after the two thousand nine two thousand nine uh, financial storm global financial uh, challenges they really revamped overhauled and they overhauled their uh, regulatory uh, body and their and their uh, system and their uh, and how compliance and and the bodies that now have wholesale uh, responsibility over the entire financial service system similarly in the U in Singapore right the the MSA the Monetary Authority of Singapore MAS Monetary Authority of Singapore has a wholesale view and it has been a very innovative body proponent of fintech. Canada in compare in comparison has a very fractured um, in terms set of, of uh, regulatory re regime. We have one uh, federal regulatory body, OSFI, which is for the, all the banks, but every other types of financial services, credit unions, insurance, wealth management to follow the provincial bodies. And even within each province, there can be others, uh, bodies that have subdomains of expertise or responsibilities. And so, in a system like that, in an infrastructure like that, it's quite difficult to apply some of these re reforms because now you have multiple, multiple bodies to go through and and, and understand and review. So a, a drive to not just in the privacy bill and about, about data and, and, and personal privacy, but a drive to modernize the regulatory regime across Canada would really enable um, modernizations like payments, payment modernization of real-time rails, like open banking, open finance, and, and allow other innovations and innovators to to really blossom and, and succeed because it would allow a much modern, more modern set of rules for them to develop the products and services and, and meet their compliance requirements and perhaps as to owners for some of the startups. Um, and it's one of the reasons why from, for a lot of fintechs that going to other markets like the U.S. makes more sense for them to, to push their products. And it's also why... Some of the Canadian banks, they incur massive costs on an annual basis just in the compliance exercises and, and the, uh, towards the maintenance of these somewhat antiquated legacy systems and, and, and procedures. And so if you're able, if, if the government is able to play a bigger role in leading that change and, and drive to modernize and, and evolve, I think you'll see a lot of uh, much greater leaps and bounds of improvement in, in both innovation and you know these these modernized financial services and and access to these type of financial services for all Canadians. Right. It sounds like a ton of bureaucracy to me. <laughs> <laughs>
There's multiple layers of government involved. Yes. <laughs> uh, that's really, but you know what? I think I want to step back for a second because we're speaking about some of the finer workings of open banking, but just so that everyone gets kind of a clear image of what it is, how will it actually work? So let's say I want to, I don't know, I decide to go and get a mortgage, mm -hmm. right? And I've, I've found like some boutique mortgage uh, brokerage where, where I'm going to where I'm going to go because they've essentially promised me the lowest rate. And if I ever find a lower rate, they'll match it. And I'm like, perfect. Yeah. This is where I'm going to go. So I go there and, and then they give me a stack of documents. And, oh, and I expect open banking is supposed to make that stack of documents go away. So how does it work? Well, What's the process? Certainly there's the potential for it. So I, I guess it depends on how we sort of unpack what you've just said about the, the broker. So if it's online, I mean, if it's a broker, you know, you know, you've seen the little boutique firms, you go in and talk to them, they've got their relationships with two or three mortgage providers, maybe more. If we use the common example, um, ratehub.ca is probably the one that's been around the most. It's a website you go to and they have pulled all the mortgage information from all the banks and credit unions and other mortgage providers and they list it there. And if you want to look up variable rate or fixed rate mortgages, there it is. There's the top 30 so you can look at it and go, great, there's the rates. So then you've got to choose, well, look, that one, this credit union or that bank or this other entity has got the best rate. I want that. You've got to click on it. And at this point in time, it drives you to their website where you fill out their form, right? So the user experience is this is aggregating data, much like in the travel industry, uh, an Expedia or Travelocity. Here's all the information about mortgage rates in Canada. You pick which one you want. You're just shopping the rate. Now go apply and away you go. Good luck. Where we can see it applied, and again, there's extensions as to how quickly we'll get to these. RateHub could keep you there. You know, I'm interacting with you. Okay, Lubna, you've chosen this one. Let me use open banking capabilities, APIs. Let me go find out what information they would collect from you by giving you a form. And I'll come back and we'll conversationally collect all the data, make sure you're happy, and then we'll fire it off to them. So essentially, it's a pre-filled mortgage application. Mm. So now they've got the application. You haven't had to fill out anything. I mean, this is a, a small piece. Where it becomes really interesting is if RateHub can actually go get the mortgage model, the credit model that they use, take your information, put it into the model, run it, and pre-adjudicate you, and then send it to them and go, according to your model, Lubna's been improved. Now just... You know, give it a check mark, rubber stamp it, and we're good to go. Give her the money, and let's. She's got her mortgage, so you could extend services. Well, I should say, you extend the customer experience, so you don't have to be pushed from the the research hub to the actual provider of the mortgage. They can do it all there. Maybe there's a you know a small fee for it. Maybe there's not, but if they have access to that information and they can actually take it to that extent where the bank goes, I didn't have to lift a finger. You've just onboarded a customer for me at no cost. All I had to do was tell you what information I need and give you the information about my, my credit adjudication model, and now you've been approved. So RateHub had the relationship with you, at least the beginning of it, but the provider goes, I've now got Lubna on my books. Now I'm going to start talking to you to try and uh, cross-sell you and upsell you. So open banking can be used that way to improve and extend the experience. Or it can be used in other ways. I mean, the one we classically talk about is, you know, the example of Mint. Just bring all my data from all these different sources so I can see what, you know, I'll get a complete view of myself. And as Roy said, you know, banks, credit unions, financial institutions, 
uh, wealth advisors, they all want to have that same 360 view. Any anyone who wants to build a financial plan for you, you know, tell me what's in your in your what's your what are your what are your liabilities and your credit cards and your mortgage? What's in your bank accounts? Tell me about everything else you've got. Uh, where are your investments, which are a different place? And have you got RSPs? And you know, have you got other other sources of of money or liabilities? If I can see it all now, I can create a, a far more detailed and personalized plan for you, rather than being just rather generic. So different different use cases, right? The mortgage one. That we'll also find that there will be absolutely be companies that all, all they do is search the market for products, product comparison. Again, like the travel industry, right? Here's the best credit card. Here's the cheapest savings account or the highest interest rate savings account. Here's the best price on mortgages. Here's the best uh, RSP or uh, exchange traded fund to put your money in. Like you can do product comparisons across the market and then recommend to somebody. Then the open banking gets used to actually help you sign up for it. Mm -hmm. Right. So I can give you the information. I can tell you, go fill this out. But if, I, if I've recommended something to you, what I really want to be able to do is help you take that next step and sign up for that, that better product or service, whatever it is. Right. So that example that you provided about Mint, for instance, mm. gathering all your information in one tidy place so that you have a, you know, a comprehensive view of essentially your life. Yeah. Now, so I, I would log on to Mint and I would give Mint permission, hey, Go to institution one, two, three. This yep. is where I have, you know, XYZ. You tell them what you've got, the type of account. Yeah. Like today, I mean, as you mentioned, screen scraping early on. Today, you if you open up a Mint account, sign up, you say, I've got, you know, I've got an account at this bank. I've got a credit card at that bank. You've got to give them your username and password because they screen scrape. They log in as if they were you and they're able to pull the data off the screen and then they do their job. So with open banking, hopefully the intent is we eliminate that screen scraping. You actually have the bank providing that information directly to them securely, right? right. And then they do they do their job. But you've got to sign up for that service and you've got to tell them, well, I've got a credit card here and a mortgage there and three accounts here and something over there. So it's it's entirely reliant upon you telling them where your information is. So you tell Mint to go get it, but then you've also got to tell insta each of those institutions that have it You've got to give them your consent to release the data. So you give them permission to go get it, and the rest of them consent to release it to them. Right. And and that sounds like a long process. doesn't so, have to be. You so can, like, hopefully can it's it, automated. How can, it be, how can it be efficient, I guess, is my question. Well, that's sort of the, that's the intent, is that when you, when you look, first sign in or register for Mint or any others, you tell them where it is, and then using APIs, they go straight back and forth. What they'll do is they'll push you into, uh, you probably push you into your online banking or your mobile app login. That's the validation that it's you. That's your, uh, you know, authorization, and that's how you provide your consent. So they can do it within seconds. Mm -hmm. But you do have to do it with all like five institutions, right? Yeah, and, you know the uh, so there there are increasing number of services. I mean, we re, the recent Open Banking Expo event in Toronto. Um, a number of um, vendors have reached out to us and for seek potential conversation and partnerships. And and the UK certainly, given the experience, they have utilities built and they're starting to have uh, service providers where they aggregate a lot of the aggregators, right? So what you're talking about is aggregating the data, aggregating everybody's financial service data to one platform. Well, how, when, when, you, when you want to go the other way around, when you want to give permission to aggregate, how do they do that? Well, increasingly... There are services, and one of the uh, frameworks that have been discussed right now in the Canadian context is 
is is there a possibility of building utility where, where as long as everybody in, on, are accredited, that they would have a utility built in the middle who would run that utility um, of, of allowing, of, of managing the permissioning of this so that you don't have to do these individual permissions, that to be able to do group permissioning and then so be able to grant consent and revoke consent mm. in a group basis based on your, your use, based Just on- Tick boxes instead of individual- conversations right exactly and so and so there are increasing these are all part of lessons learned and i think canada will be a great to your point previously will benefit from a lot of these lessons learned about what what need to do what how can we accelerate adoption how can we uh, inform better inform all the users be as you know consumers or small businesses all the benefits and, and from from being a, a part of the system and that is not the wild, wild west, right? Of taking your data and sending it to everybody and that you, in fact, have greater control and you will be able to control not only to whom, but for what purpose some of this data sharing uh, is being used for. Right. And your data will remain with the individual institutions. It won't be like in some one centralized place. Yeah. And so if you have a breach there, it's... Right. And then that's disastrous. part of the liability because the banks obviously be is the current... Uh, the. Uh, de facto custodian of a lot of these data. And when they share it, they will be sharing through API and, and that's what the API allows us to grab them. So there are gonna be rules. So some some service and product are gonna need a copy of the data or data residency in, in, in their system. And some are not. Some are just gonna be using it and 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 passing it through. And so there are all kinds of rules and there are complexities, right? The 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 work of the open banking lead is not so simple as to say well, let's just be one happy family sing Kumbaya and we just offer the greater benefit <laughs> of the of the Canadian financial services. Uh, so there are these uh, nuanced, you know, challenges and complexities that that uh, the, the 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 custody, even if temporary, of a customer's data and if, and if there's a breach, you know, who's then responsible? What's what's in agreement and um, is set in stone from the Canadian government perspective for all, for all the participants is the consumer will and must be made whole as a, as a first priority. And then there will be a set of rules governing about how the, the disputes among the institution, among service providers, whether you're holder data or just trans, a transitory user of data and how those will be, um, the, the, how the liabilities will be divided and designated. So it, that, I'm guessing that's one of the major sticking points right now. Oh, absolutely. With- the liability piece of it for sure because for all the, for the banks and and the banks doesn't have to be just the big five six canadian banks but all institutions who have data it's part of the risk management portfolio if they're going to allow access to their data what's the what's the risk profile what's their risk appetite and how can they, what can they do as they do every day to mitigate that risk got to be more than just hey i did what you said i gave the data to the person you told me to give it to i'm good right Right, it, it can't be that. It's they they expect to have a legislation and framework that will protect them. I did it the right way. It was encrypted. I've handed it off to an authorized body. I had your permission. There, I should have no liability. It should follow the data to where it goes. Right, but that's what we need before everyone feels comfortable to really participate in this. Right, but uh, as we mentioned, there are other geographies doing this. So, how did they handle this issue? So, you know, for, for so the Canadian, uh, going back again a bit of recent history, the Canadian um, regime that is being proposed in open banking, open finance is something called a hybrid model. And for the Canadian government, the hybrid model means it's government oversight, but it's a solution built and delivered by the private industry. 
And so, so hence where some of the, the disagreements and the challenge come in. Uh, what's what's the set of common rules? In the UK, as an example, it was much more prescriptive. The first nine institutions designated as CMA nine, the CMA for the Com- Competition Market Authority in the UK, they actually named the nine banks, and thou shalt be open banking by January of twenty eighteen, and and so they had no choice. And here were the fines that were going to be. Uh, here are the consequences if you don't meet those dates. And then it, it so it had uh, it had a very prescriptive um, set of rules around the API standards. David mentioned before about about the API standards. Uh, and and w- what those API look like, and what the fu- specific functionalities they will have, and what they will allow, won't allow, and so they also had very strict rules about data. Now, interestingly, because at the time when open banking was first discussed, they were your UK was still part of Europe, and so it was um, it was par- par- bound under the G- the GDPR, which is a very strict set of rules about data uh, data privacy and data distribution of, in the UK and the penalty in Europe. And the penalty, which is are, are phenomenal compared to you know North American standards, and so they have some very very strict laws, and they still have some very strict laws in the EU about about how data sharing, the general data protection and uh, regulation GDPR, and so how, how that data is disposed, and and you know even if and we're bound to it. So if we want to participate in UK events and we have a partner who's bringing the event over, they can't just share their data. Because they're bound so bound by GDPR, and so some of some of these child some of these are very prescriptive and and nailed down. For us, we are trying to um, not quite kumbaya, but we're definitely trying to come to a, a, a much more collegial and happy agreement among all the participants, uh, which made and leads to leads to itself to its own set of challenges. Right. Well, it sounds to me like perhaps in typical Canadian fashion, we're being too nice. <laughs> <laughs> Possibly. I mean, the, the hybrid approach is, there's only a couple of other countries that have done that. Um, most of them, it's the regulator or the you know, the government that has said, I want all of these you know potential benefits of choice and, and competition and things. So here's the rules you've got to play by. It. And so pres- prescriptive, telling you how to do it. And then a couple of countries have done it as a hybrid where yeah, we're going to put the rules in place, but we'd rather just give you guard guardrails. You as an industry figure out what you want to do. And then if you step outside, I'll push you back in the box. But well, here's the guardrails. And then you get something like the US where it's completely market driven. So there's no standards. There's no government push. If you can make a buck, have at it. And it's completely capitalism in its, you know, in its glory. So we've seen definitely different ways. The regulated ones get to an end state quicker. But that's not to say that they're they're right, and certainly that doesn't mean it's right for us. So, as you said, we're nice. We like to work cooperatively and and figure these out. And we've we've got a, a great track record in Canada of having done this with everything from you know chip and pin to even payments modernization. It was very much a collaborative effort. So we all work together for the the greater common good. <laughs> Excellent. Now I am curious: Are there any technology hurdles here? Like is are we missing any technology? Is that something that's holding back some of these conversations? Or are we good on the technology front and we can even borrow technology from other regions and it's really just these regulatory frameworks? Well, from a technology standpoint, I mean, there's not a lot that's new here. Uh, it's it's expansions of what we've already had. So I'll give you an example. Banks. Banks have been using APIs internally for 20 plus years. Um, but they've been written, you know, sometimes they're web services calls, 
but they've been used internally. That doesn't mean they're commercially ready for external use, right? They're not necessarily hardened, uh, you know, for external users who have different permissioning levels. So we, we've got APIs, we understand it, but you need a spec because it's like we, we talk about it. It's like speaking different dialects or languages. You're speaking Spanish, I'm speaking French. How do we get our APIs to talk, right? So there's there's that aspect of it. In terms of the consent management, well, again, those we've looked at what was built in Europe. There are service providers, there are open source frameworks. You can use those. Uh, and you know, there's off-the-shelf software that, that does these sorts of things. So you can easily put that together. And a lot of the pieces have been, been in place for things like mobile and online banking, even telebanking, right? Put in your your password on a, on any of these things. So a lot of the pieces are there. So that looks after APIs. The consent, you can build that up pretty quickly. Uh, there's more on websites. Well, of course, we've got mobile and online apps for, for lots of these things. Where it becomes a bit more interesting is on the service side. So who's creating these, and they tend to be apps, who's creating these apps that are going to do the cool things that I want to sign up for? The data is probably the newest piece, and I'll say newer, but you know, Royal probably have a better word for it. The banks, any financial institution, financial services company has reams and reams of data and have for years for their own purposes. How do I get, you know, better get to know me and what I need or cross sell, upsell, but how do we share it? I mean, we don't, as we already said, we don't, they don't share it internally amongst their pillars. So that's new. So I I wouldn't say technology is a hurdle. Uh, It's common. The cost is a different thing. So smaller institutions, those that don't have big budgets to, to go and do these, a lot of their questions are, well, how do I participate? I'm, I'm not one of the big five. I don't have hundreds of millions to throw at this. So what do I need to build? And, and should, I, should I wait until all these frameworks are in place? Or are there things I can do now? So the, the cost of some of the infrastructure pieces, that, I mean, that's a, a challenge and something we have to talk about versus is it new technology that we don't have? Right. And so will, I'm curious, will everyone have, earlier on you mentioned that the banks, the big banks will have to participate, obviously, mm-hmm. and the credit unions get sort of a pass if they're ready or not. But what is, what are the rules for the smaller fintech players? Like, do they, do they also have to be ready immediately and ready to go? Or do they have time to get themselves ready and then they can participate whenever they feel comfortable and are able to deliver a service? So that is also part of the debate right now, right? So, so there's a lot less that is known, uh, a lot more unknowns, put it this way, and then there are knowns. And that is definitely one of the rules, like how, how so if the credit unions get an opt-in model, it's likely that the FinTech will be doing so, but if they, but for the FinTechs, if they don't participate, they lose out on accessing customers' data and, and have to rely, continue to rely on, on screen scraping, right? And so it's in their best interest to participate, but how onerous will the rules be in order for them to be able to comply and be accredited to be a, a participant? That is also being debated. That's part of the debate right now about when and how they're going to be able to allow in the scope of the data that's going to be available for them to use because there are discussions among the, part of the, the larger data custodians. Well, there's the raw data, which is your transaction. You know, if you make a withdrawal, you make a payment, you make a deposit. But then there's something called derived data, which a lot of institutions now have by taking different views of your of your behavior, and they derive their their set of insight, and that's likely not in scope. And so a lot of these a lot of these challenges and definitions and frame of of, of the frameworks remain outstanding, and which is why 
people are starting to wonder about the 2023 delivery date of this because of the, the, the complexity. This is not a two, three, four, five dimension discussion. This is a multi, multi, multi dimension yeah. discussion. And so, for, but, but from there, you know, the, uh, the, the, the angst, some of the anxieties by some of the smaller players is, well, if you make it too complex and only the biggest participant can continue to participate in an open banking regime or open finance, how open is that? And, and, um, certainly a lot of the recent headlines about banks signing bilateral agreements with some of these data aggregated service providers, uh, seem to indicate that they're preparing for a possible extended period of before re, a true open banking regime comes in and that they're dreading themselves for a, a, a brave new world of, of data sharing and and, and relying on partners and, and platforms to, for access to innovative financial services products, many of which are provided these fintechs. And so those are, um, you know, you you named uh, the some of the, the, the dimensions of challenge that for all, all the players and and you know Abraham to, to his credit has been trying to be very 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 inclusive in these conversations um so you know they've allowed observers like some of the the uh credit union associations for example and and the regulatory bodies to be observers but he he's been very very broad in allowing the biggest banks or the smallest fintechs to be in the same room and and in the same discussion in these working groups, working on topics like liability and 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 security, and so um, not easy. It's a lot of information and, and, and positions to collate, uh, and but and you know I have very strong sense that something will be done to chip and pin. Uh, David alluded to before is is was it was a difficult journey in in bringing everyone to agreement, and I think you know they they we we will get there, but whether it's twenty twenty three. Um, is the, the realization of phase one or not? That's outstanding. But I, I still remain very confident that 2023 will be a pivotal year in Canada in the, in the area of open finance. So, so go back okay. to the beginning part of your question. You said, you know, if the banks are there and the credit unions may or may not be there. And this is, I mean, reviewing it from a mandate that, you know, if we mandate this, banks, you must participate in this. Credit unions, if you're ready, come on in and play or wait and see the fintechs. But, but take a step back from fintech. And just say service providers. If we don't have service providers who need or want to access the data, is there really open banking? If a tree falls, no. Um, but if the banks, unless the banks do some of these services, and let's just use aggregation as the simple one. If my bank can aggregate, you know, the, the one that has all my accounts, if they get my mortgage and my credit cards from, an, from the other institutions, then I don't need to use someone like a Mint. So if my bank offers a service, and they do the aggregation and access the data from the other places pulled together, I'm good. But assuming I'm, I'm waiting for Mint, if we don't know how Mint <coughs> gets to play or any other fintech, then you've got banks able to give out data and no one asking for it. Right. It's, it's interesting when you put it that way because I would think the banks would really jump on board because this would be a great way for them to provide enhanced services to their clients and to perhaps create stickier relationships. Sure. And, you know, a great opportunity for consolidation of assets, I would say. It's okay, you know, look, I'm showing you all of this and this is what I can do for you. And I also feel it would be great for consumers as well because now they all these banks are competing for them and they want the whole pot. And as a result, they're actually getting like very good service and like very good um 
it might be planning, it might be investing, it might be a bundle mm-hmm. of services. Uh, and I, I think we do need a bit more of that competition when it yeah. when it comes to the Canadian financial market. So that's that's a great train of thought. So if we assuming you know, if there's no one there to ask for the data, then I don't need to give it to anyone. So you've got to assume that the banks, and and we'll talk about this now, right? The banks are looking at the use cases. What services do I want to provide? However, it's probably not right or fair or serving of the government's intentions if you don't have the ability for you know the rules for fintechs and other financial services entities to enter the game. So you can't really launch if it's just the banks and the banks have created a bunch of services and no one else can get in because that doesn't help us with competition and that doesn't help us with choice. So I certainly hope that's not the, the case and I, I don't think that'll happen. So I think you've got to delay, even if the banks are ready, you've got to delay the launch of it until you've got other providers that are in and able to do it. And then honestly, you, you will have, you know, my bank was going to look at going, I don't want David to use Mint. I'm going to provide the same functionality. Well, then I get choice, right? right. Which is what we're looking for. And maybe the price will go down. So that's what we're, we're kind of looking for. So yeah, we're, we need to wait and see what's coming. But you know that there's a whole bunch of large tech, small techs, fintech startups, and two guys in their garage, all thinking, I've got this great idea. People are going to love it. I can sell it. I just need to access your data to turn around whatever magic I, I've come up with. Definitely. It's it, it's interesting because uh, back to that competition point. This will, it'll, I I feel like in in some regards, um, there is a bit of a monopoly in within our financial institutions, you, you know. But oligopoly or, or oligopoly is is the way to say it. But this will be a good chance for them to actually prove themselves, right? Because our financial system is very secure. It's very stable. It's very reliable, mm-hmm. which is great. And you know. I know that, okay, once, I, I know my bank account's safe. You know, once my check goes in there, you know, my biweekly paycheck goes in there, I, I don't worry so about- you go call it paycheck. Paper. There you go. <laughs> yes. Um, well, I have a retirement paycheck project that I, I've been working on, so we'll mm. talk about that in another episode. But it's it's really it's really interesting because we- we have that trust and we have that faith in our institutions because they've proven it, right? So while they might be all, it might be an oligopoly, there, there is a reason for that. There's a reason that there's such a high barrier for entry because of everything that they do. So they've proven themselves through the trials and tribulations, I would say. But I think they do need to be tested a bit when it comes to competition because perhaps there is a bit of complaint, uh, a bit, they're a bit complacent, right? They're like, oh, Everyone's here. We're happy. They're happy with us. We're doing a great job. No need to really expand it any further. But I feel like this will kind of force them to do a bit more, be a bit more competitive. You know, maybe they, David has assets at Bank One and Bank Two, and now, you know, he's using open banking and they can see all his assets. He's, consult, you know, getting a comprehensive view with each institution. They're like, oh my God, we really want David. David, his mortgage is going to be, you know, expiring. He needs to renew it soon. Let's give him a better rate and try Where's to- my banker? You heard this, right? <laughs> right. Let, let, let's give David a better rate and get him to consolidate his assets here. And let's give him a bundle, you know, on his checking accounts and his saving accounts. And let's, you That's know, the throw us, like, you know, a, let's waive his RESP fees for his kids. You know, let's get him in here. I I think that would be a great approach for for both sides because the banks, you know, now have clients for life because they're providing all these amazing services and people really feel the loyalty. 
and the client is getting benefit, like actual benefit that they can see. What's interesting is uh, this question actually answers, provides some of the answer to the previous question you had, right? And that they're so stable and they already have so much that for, for many of the bankers, not all bankers, I've met, I've met you know, many in the bank who feel like you're right, a, a broader competition will actually allow them to have provide not only better service, but gain, gain better ground for their consumers. But for many others in the bank, and perhaps those who are more traditional and, and been in the bank's longer time, they've, the feeling is, yes, we can definitely be a little more competitive when we could gain two or three percentage points in some of these businesses. For, if we're not issuing all the credit cards we can, we could issue a few more. But for them, the, those gains are marginal. And the devils they know, and the, the, the customers they already have, and the steadiness and the loyalty that the customer um, displayed to them and, and is, is evident to them is in fact more comforting and allows them to just churn out and has allowed them to continue to churn out these record profit rate, right? The efficiency rate of these banks, the ratings, and, and, and whenever there has been, you know, staff reduction, it's all about gaining these efficiency ratings. And so, so for a lot of the banks in the, the sense of competition is it's not worth sacrificing what we already have in order to possibly giving up something you already have in order to gain a few extra extra points. And so the status quo is is key. Now, I've often said this in in, in previous you know, panels and, and discussions that 2000, 2009, the global financial challenge for many of the banks uh, was a turning point for many of the financial regime for many countries. It was a turning point in the UK, for example, that really upended their entire financial regulatory regime in order to meet the challenges, the, the unforeseen challenges of that period. Canada you know, came through relatively unscathed, very stable, very calm. Uh, and and that, that stability, in fact, my thesis is, has been one of the, to the greatest detriment of Canadian financial services innovation because it allows the banks to continue on the current course they charted and say, well, look at the stability. We're the envy of the world and we, and we provide it. You know, we protect your money. We'll continue to provide your money. We may be seen as conservative. We may be seen as a fast flower and slow moving, but we've done our job of protecting our customers' money. And for, but you know, in a in a more disrupted and and more chaotic, some argue, environment like the UK, it really not only upended and allowed a new financial regime, a financial regulatory regime to come, come board, but for many of those who left the banks, they also became founders of some of the the most successful neo banks and and fintech startups in the UK. So it provided a very fertile environment, some of that chaos, in fact, provided some of the fertile environment for, for innovation right. in, in the UK. Well, it's that saying, right? You always need some discomfort to push yeah. you forward. A comfortable person or firm does not grow, right? Right. And they made that leap. Now, what's interesting is that the five-year anniversary of Open Banking UK, there are many feel that they've become more too complacent in their success, <laughs> that they've stopped sort of pushing the, the envelope and they're no longer perhaps the leading open finance or open banking jurisdiction on, on the world stage. And what can they do to, and they just appoint a new head for the entity that heads up with banking as they are reviewing, you know, their, their mandate in the future. And so that's what you need. And, and this is a, the, the great lesson of Canadian, whether it's Finance Canada, we, we, any successive government that comes in uh, after this one, or even the current government is, how, you have to always be looking at you know, where else can we improve? What else can we do to innovate? What else can we do 
to really not be comfortable with where we are and and push up for that discomfort, even if there's no chaos. And how do we push our our envelope so that we continue to evaluate where should we be in five years, and not get to that five year horizon and, and and sit comfortably on on you know your rear end, and enjoy enjoy the fruits <laughs> of your work. Right? And so that's right. the difference. Well, I was telling David just last week how discomfort is good for you, and he didn't believe me. So. Hopefully. I don't like to be uncomfortable. <laughs> Sorry, discomfort, right. Well, actually, this is a good, a good segue. I mean, Roy's right. You saw lots of uh, executives or product leads leave banks to do startups because, hey, we can do better, but our bank didn't believe in that. Uh, the complacency comes from success and stability and all those sorts of things. So if we start to look at, well, what would make a bank want to disrupt themselves? And I'll say it that way. Um so we've got this opportunity to develop, sorry, develop these new services and, and move forward. Uh, they're all looking at, well, uh, to some extent, this is a compliance uh, mandate. Thou, thou shalt participate in open banking. Great. But I also have to figure this out from a business perspective. Where will I make money in this? And you and I have talked about this as well. And, and Roy and I, in all our conversations with, with you know, institutions, small and large, it's I know I'm going to have to give data away or be able to, you know, hand off data with permission. You know what I'm saying when I say that. But where am I going to make money? How I'm I'm going to have to make all these investments. Where will I make it back? And because it's compliance, it's a little easier to get money within a bank to, because hey, it's government said I have to do it. We have to do it. But in every other situation, if you want to do something new, you have to present a business case internally to get sign off, to get budget, and to get resources to do the thing that is you want. So they're all looking for use cases. And the very basic stuff, we've talked about a lot about them today, uh, aggregation of data, uh, personal financial management. Personal financial management is a pretty broad one, but it's the biggest category of services we see in every country when they adopt open banking. And then we start to look at different categories. Well, you know, the ability to move money based on recommendations, the ability to monitor accounts of the financially, financially vulnerable. You start to look for all these different use cases to say, okay, who wants these? Is this a chargeable service? Is it something I do because it'll grow the rest of my business? Right? I, I turned off the phone. Seriously. Um, <laughs> that was the watch. We laughed about that and said that would happen, didn't we? Um, but that that's what they're all looking for. What are the use cases? And because, as Roy said, you have to put a lot of effort in to gain more. When you've got 8 or 10 or 12 million customers, how much effort do I have to put in to get more? And is it worth it for another 100,000 or even a million customers? So they're always looking at, what's the business driver for me to do more than just comply with open banking, right? So if I can improve the experience, great, that's good. I get to retain, that's retention. That's a business model into itself. But if I'm going to try and, I'm either going to try and sell more products and services to my existing, existing customer base or acquire more customers at the least cost, so that I can, you know, grow those relationships. So these use cases are, are the biggest probably conversation point we're having of late. Everyone wants to know what does Joe consumer and and you know small business owner want or need for us from us to help make their lives better. That in turn, if I offer these products and services, it's beneficial to me as a you know a, a money generating entity. Well, that that's a good point, and I suppose since I have you both here, I should learn a bit about what you guys actually do. So <laughs> what have you been helping these financial institutions with? You know, what are some of the capabilities that we as a firm have in this arena? 
I'll start because you know we, we really we we really come from two 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 ends and come to bring the same solution, right? And so from the business and some of the strategy side, we really want to help customers. We're we're not a strict strategy firm, so we, but really want to help clients, whether it's banks, financial institutions, wealth uh, companies, insurance companies, identified where the strategic priorities lie in terms of open banking, open finance, and some of these finance innovations. And where the intersections are, because it's where where they intersect is where we can help them define and align. And so once we have the comfort with that, you know, they, David talks about the use cases. That is a question we get asked a lot these days. The the what of open banking, I think, is sort of understood, even though it's not completely well defined. But people are waiting for the government to define it. The how that is the rules are being defined. So once they have the rules, the how will become clearer. But it's the why. The why are we doing this? What? Why are we, you know, investing? Why are we subjecting our our institution to some of these changes? And why are we following this trend? And so we we really try to be there and help them understand the why. And the why has to fit within their overall corporate strategy, their their their, their capabilities, the current and future capabilities. And some some um, from a discussion I had this morning, you know. The business infrastructure, as well as the technology infrastructure. How do you plan on serving your customers in the future in an open banking regime? And how does your bank have to change in terms of the organization about product management? How did how does the the domains of product management and product development have to change? And so this is a lot where from from we we sit in front of um, the client that from my perspective we we start a lot of these conversations and the areas of open banking so that we start to, it, it's not philosophizing banking 2.0, but it's really delivering understanding what open banking and open finance and data mobility will do to contribute to the next generation of banking financial services. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, well said. Um, we assume, and so far we've been proven right, uh, just about every uh, institution we talk to, they've ha- they have a strategy or at least a vision so our our job is to help them add more details to it, as Roy said, you know, look at the use cases and get them to the point where what's the roadmap? What do we need to do? In what order? Like we need to be pragmatic. We need to be really realistic. Look, you've got to have these pieces: business and technology. It's going to take you this long. Let's find solutions. It's, you don't have to build everything, but if you can, great. You know, buy, build, rent. We get them into those conversations. We also come at it from you know. So if we call that the strategic and change sort of approach or applied consulting, right? Let's be realistic and and pragmatic with these things. We also have the other. As a global company, we have, you know, um, we have colleagues in other other countries that have gone through this. So we're able to tap into them for their knowledge and their learnings and understanding. And then the other benefit as a global company um, that we have these solutions. So I mean, Roy and I are having conversations <laughs> with a number of companies about partnerships. So if there's something, a solution that CGI doesn't have or I can't bring to the table, we'll work with a partner to bring that to you. So right now, from strictly an open banking, I mean, we're in the process of, of taking an open banking platform that we had in Europe, Canadianizing it. It'll be available for the U.S. as well. But uh, putting all those pieces together and then going out and talking to um, the banks, the credit unions, the wealth, the insurance companies, and, and as, as we do the assessments, so what have you got from a technology standpoint? What investments have you made? We want you to leverage those. Don't want them to throw it away. What else can we do to fill in the gaps so that you have a complete solution? 
And that's, you know, most, just about everyone we talk to has got some form of API gateway, right? So that's, that's in place. But we haven't heard a lot about the consent management components. There's a number of components there. They've all got lots of, of investment in data, but have you got it so that you can monitor, you know, all these APIs and monitor how much data is going out the door? Is it all working? Have you got a billing mechanism to charge people for the use of APIs if that's the case, right? So we're, we want to help the thought process. And it's, as Roy said, it's very much a change approach. You've got to think differently. Right, your products, your lines of business, even your technology groups, how they think, and then we need to make sure you've got all the technology you need to actually um, participate, and particularly for uh, the smaller institutions that don't have uh, the big funds, we want to be able to help them to participate. I think open banking can be a great leveler that they can compete with the big guys, right? So we can offer a platform that allows you know all of them to share in in the platform. That keeps the cost down. We work with other partners, which. Uh, large technology and cloud firms, but I won't mention the names, like that sort of thing. We work with them and other partners to be able to bring this uh, as the great equalizer. Everyone should be able to participate from a, uh, I want to say the data holding sort of side of it, but it's also the services. Everyone should be able to participate in open banking. It shouldn't just be the big and the rich. Right. Well, it sounds like a very platformized approach to it, having it all in one place. You've listened to Jamie and all about platforms. <laughs> of course. Yes, absolutely. Yes. But no, I, I think that's incredible and definitely something that the market needs. I haven't heard a ton about open banking platform solutions that have been provided to the market. And, you know, to, uh, and you both have pointed this out, but there is a bit of an, an inequality here, right? In terms of you have some players who are very well financed and are able to participate to the fullest with all the bells and whistles. And then you have others, you know, who have very, um, I would say, valuable offerings that they want to provide, but unfortunately, they just don't have the capital. So having a platform that kind of levels things out a bit, uh, I think is a definite win for providers and consumers, right? Mm -hmm. Sorry, we were just in a conversation yesterday and um, it, it links with other ones we've had. I've got two thoughts trying to jump out of my head. <laughs> One is, you know, I, we presented to a, a credit union board of directors, and they said, "We're a small credit union. What, what can we? What can we do? We, we can't afford this. We can't make mistakes. We want to wait until we know what we have to do." And, and you know, we can give them, and we started to give them some guidance on what you can actually start with. But the conversation yesterday was was about again related to the credit union world. Um, Open banking, we keep talking about apps and services, which are mainly going to be apps and the odd, you know, online online or website, let's say it that way. What do you do for people who don't use that technology? And it was a real, I mean, it was an eye-opener when, when it was mentioned. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I'll use an example just, you know, close to home for me. My wife comes from a small town in Saskatchewan. My in-laws and others, they go to the branch. They talk to Betty. So how does open banking affect them if they're not on their phones or on a website? How do you open up these new services to them. And I have to say, I have to, I'm going to have to think about that for a little while, but is it, does it mean that people in the branch have to be more of facilitators to assist mm -hmm. people? So, I mean, uh, yeah, we're generalizing to say it's, it's small towns, it's rural and all that, but that's a reality potentially, or it could be anywhere in, in Toronto or any other big city. If you're not technology savvy or have access to it, how is open banking going to benefit you? And it was a it was a it was a great question to uh, to sort of ponder, and we have to solve for that as well. Right. Yeah. That's that's inclusion. 
And that that's a very good point. Like I actually know someone in his early 30s, young young individual, um and he just does not like technology. He's he's very good with it and like you know he does it when he has to, but he is someone who goes to bank branches who if he needs his auto insurance, he made an appointment and went in there. It, it's just I think it's just perhaps a bit of a rebellious streak on his side. He just doesn't want to conform to what everyone else is doing. But, you know, there are personal preferences, right? And it's not just small towns, rural communities. Mm -hmm. You have people all over who just have a different perspective on life. And there are people who feel that, you know, technology perhaps is kind of overpowering and just taking over our lives and and they don't want to follow that path. And I don't think that's an invalid thought process. People are... You know, they're they're allowed to have their opinions and thoughts. And if they want to live life differently and, you know, not be hooked up to the matrix if they don't want to be, <laughs> you shouldn't have to be, right? Yeah. As, you know, and, and, and this may sound like a bit of a plug for CGI, but the great thing about CGI is it's it's always been an enabler for a financial institution, the clients that we work with, right? And and, and perhaps from, you know, providing them with, with expertise and resources and knowledge, and some of it's providing an IV solution. So, what in in the in the in the brave new world of open finance, what we continue to seek to do is to be enabled to enable customers wherever they are on that journey, big and small, uh, what which the pieces they have and what pieces they need, in order to help them fit the open banking and open finance into their into their future. And so, so the the thing that I I see um, excited about CGI and as we continue to develop and uh, some of these relationships and, and some of methodology and, and into applied consulting is very much about how do we continue to enable, how do we adapt to whatever regime or some of the rules that come down that we continue to provide the clients with the best set of, you know, this, this strategy view as well as the IP solution technology view mm-hmm. and how do we ta- tag, you know, payment modernization into these conversations and, and continue to be enabled to our client. And I think that's, and having these these you know large pieces of the jigsaw puzzle really helps us figure out the smaller pieces and how to fit the, uh, the gap and, and fill in the and fill in the the, uh, the blank for our, our clients. And I think that's the that's a really neat piece. And that's what I, I that sort of gets me excited because I like to be um, for those you know who sees my, my LinkedIn profile. I call myself a dot connector. I love being a, connecting the dots, and I think it's really uh, CGI really allows us to do that. Definitely. No, I've, and that's something, I feel like that's a recurring theme with a lot of the guests that I've spoken with is that there, there's a lot of capabilities at CGI and it just, even, you know, us, I'm sure this may apply to the two of you, but for me definitely is that CGI is just, it's such a behemoth of a firm and it's so global and we have, we have a part in pretty much everything. It feels like, and uh, we're, we're just not aware of it. So yeah. it, it's always really nice when I hear people mention other geographies where we operate and leveraging the resources there. So David, you mentioned that earlier because it, we do have presence in Europe. We do have a presence in Europe Absolutely. where people uh, in those offices have gone through the open banking introduction and they're living it right now. So What's their, what was their experience like? What can we learn from it? How can we help our clients here? And I know you two have a lot of meetings that you're in pretty much almost on a daily basis where you're discussing this. And so I think it's a great service to our clients for you guys to be able to leverage the resources that we have and provide 
accurate information or as accurate as, as it can be, given the knowledge that we have. Uh, absolutely. And, and so, as you said, I mean, CGI is a very large company. One of the things you quickly learn to do is is the networking, is to get to know. Because you'll, you'll, you'll read something in the newspaper and go, we do what in Germany? <laughs> I didn't know that. And then you've got to track down, well, who in the German business unit has this? So you're right. From an open banking perspective, we've been very, very lucky. Um, we had a number of teams in Europe that were involved with you know, the original PSD2 and the way they launched it. Uh, we stood up two digital banks and helped reform, sorry, transform, digitally transform a third bank, a bank in Luxembourg that's like 180 years old, something like that, um, to get them in. So we have all the knowledge and learnings from that. The, the platform that we were talking about actually originated there. Uh, we built a digital bank from scratch. Again, I say we, it's the royal we of, of CGI. And then we look at our colleagues in the UK who were very, very closely involved with uh, the Financial um, Competition Authority. Uh, they were closely involved with OBIE, which was the Open Banking Implementation Entity. So we've not only been involved at the sort of the regulatory level, the government levels where they're adopting these, We've been involved with our clients, so our, our bank and other financial institution clients who needed to prepare to participate in open banking. We've seen uh, the different you know models, specifications. So we have access to all of these people, and you know we we have a, a global open banking working group that, that that Roy and I we share information. So we're telling them what's going on here, and they quickly go, "Oh well, fifteen years ago when we did it, well maybe it's eight <laughs> years ago, but it, it's that sort of thing." They'll tell us what they did, what they saw. Oh, and we did this, but then we changed it three years later because this was a better way. So we're very lucky to benefit from that information, be able to share it. Now, as I said earlier, sometimes we've got to adapt or adopt it or alter it to fit the, the situation here. But it's great to have have that extra knowledge and experience that we can we can tap into. And we'll bring actually on luckily it's all teams. We can bring people into calls with clients to say, you know, don't don't listen to us who've done the research from our colleagues. We'll we'll get them on the phone. We'll we'll talk to them. Definitely. Now, before we leave, I am curious, what is your vision? Like, what, what do you actually feel will happen in 2023? And then when do you think open banking will, you know, become a real reality where you can touch and, you know, it has a touch and feel of, of the real thing in Canada? So from my perspective, and, and depending on, on what the full open banking experience, right, like in the, in the, the Canadian definition of phase one uh, is, is, does not satisfy many people, David included, because David's spoken of Payments Canada or something and call it, you know, read is not enough. Um, so so for, the, for those, you know, the time horizon is shorter, probably not 2023, perhaps in 2024. But I think for a market like Canada to fully realize the potential of an open finance regime where you can initiate transactions, where you can have a more open, secure, consensus sharing of data, you're probably looking at a three to five years. And that's just part of, part of because there's the, 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 the multidimensional complexity and the moving parts I mentioned before. You have to have regulation in place that are, are you know evolved and modernized to meet those. You have to have the the date the 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 bill C twenty seven currently that will have to be become law in order to again update personal privacy the data use. Um, you have to have uh, an an upgrade and continue to upgrade into for a lot of the banks some of the infrastructure changes that are starting to happen but that hasn't it hasn't quite quite hit its stride yet. So you have all these elements that sort of need to come together. Uh, and, and so, you know, time horizon, and, and for some who are impatient, I'm impatient by nature, but I'm also a pragmatic realist. And so 
three to five years may sound like a long time, but in the in the annals of Canadian banking, three to five years is is probably the right amount of time for it to be able to progress at a at a very safe, secured, and reliable rate in order to hit that to hit that invasion. Yeah. I agree with that sort of time frame. I mean, and we've seen that in other countries. Look to the UK. Um, we'll have everything in place. We'll start with our phase one, which is just access to accounts and, and the data. Then we'll move into sort of the account portability or data portability and payment initiation phases. That'll come. So we're probably looking, what, 18 to 24 months to have those sort of things in place, the basics. But the adoption curve, uh, as with everything or anything, uh, we've certainly seen it in the payments world. I've got to have services I've got to be able to trust them. I've got to know, you know, I've got to read enough to, to, for, to be comfortable to know that I can trust this open banking thing. And most people don't care about open banking. They don't care about APIs. They just want to know, look, there's a service that is going to help me in whatever manner, and I can trust it. And I should be able to look it up somewhere to know that they're on a list of approved things. Everyone else is scamming you, but these guys are, these are legit. It's that component, that education and trust that you need to build up. And that takes time. So I need to have services available. You know, they'll come running through the door as soon as they know what the hurdles they have to meet and they'll show up. So we've got to have the trust factor to know that those are there. They've got to get them in place. We've got to see it working. A lot of people stand back and go, I'll, I'll let the first person do it and we'll see if it falls on their face or falls on its face. And then I'll jump in once I know I can trust it. Or my friend tells me, yeah, I've got this great service and all these things and there's no issues, right? So that adoption, that's why that three to five is is easily a very realistic thing. We can have all the pieces in place within a couple of years, but it's it takes time to educate and confirm trust in the system. Definitely. Well, Roy, David, this has been a very insightful conversation. Thank you for coming out and chatting with me. Thanks for having You're us. You're very welcome. Thank you. Of course. And now for a bit of housekeeping. Uh, if you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to share, like, and subscribe. And we will catch you at the next one.